listening, and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to the show, everyone. I trust you've readied yourself for an hour of monsters, mysteries, maybe even a little mayhem. I have a dandy of a show for you guys this evening, and I have something kind of special waiting for you at the end. But first, it's time to kick off this little journey. But before we do, I feel like our first story needs a little crash course. Our first caller refers to a UFO sighting and subsequent abduction by a New Hampshire couple by the name of Betty and Barney Hill. Here is a little refresher on that case from the History Channel and Project Blue Book. September 19, 1961 has the first really dramatic and well-publicized case of alien abduction. Betty and Barney Hill were driving through the White Mountain area of New Hampshire. It's late at night. Betty sees this unusual light that seems to be maneuvering. This light stopped in midair directly in front of us. The car motor stalled. And at that point, I realized that they undoubtedly planned to take us on board. And then the next thing is that they're 35 miles down the road and they have no idea how they got that far down the road. It turns out they were missing two hours. And now, armed with that knowledge, I present to you David's Call from the state of Massachusetts. Hello, Derek, Addy, and friends. Four words, Betty and Barney Hill. Actually, more like six. Betty and Barney Hill's 50th anniversary. My name is David, and I live in Massachusetts. What I'm about to share with you goes back to September 2011. My sister and I couldn't resist heading up to New Hampshire to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Betty and Barney's. But because of our work schedule, We were unable to go on the exact date of the 19th. Instead, we had to settle for a few days later on the 24th. Our first stop was in Kingston, New Hampshire, the final resting place of Betty and Barney. Turns out the cemetery they are buried in is right down the street from the house my grandparents lived in back in the 1950s. With Betty's connection to Kingston, New Hampshire, it makes me wonder if they ever knew Betty. After paying our respects to the hills, we continued north all the way up to Lincoln, New Hampshire. Our plan was to retrace part of the route they took back home that night. By the time we arrived there, it was already getting dark. Driving down the road past where Barney stopped the car to get out with his binoculars was worth the trip. We then headed south to Thornton, New Hampshire, the alleged exact location of their abduction. Being there almost 50 years to the day was definitely creepy with a capital C. At this point, it was about 9.30 in the evening, as my sister and I got back on 93 South to head back to Massachusetts. At that hour, there was no one on the highway, only a passing car every few minutes. We were just north of exit 30 when we both spotted a light up in the sky. The night was clear, no clouds at all. This light was moving very slowly from west to east, and it appeared to be about 6,000 feet in the air. I pulled over and stopped the car. At this moment, I got out to get a better look. This light was changing color from red to orange and then white, 
in a blending kind of way over and over. It then stopped directly over the highway, never making any kind of noise at all. You couldn't see any shape of any type of craft, just this light in the sky that looked to be about the size of an M&M from where we were. I was like, what the hell is that? It continued to just stay in that position for about five minutes when it just disappeared in a blink of an eye. It wasn't like it took off, it just vanished without a sound. When this happened, my sister, who was still in the car, began to freak out. She said, and I quote, get back in the car, get back in the car, get back in the car. <laughs> it's funny now, but not at the time. <laughs> she later told me she was sure it was about to appear right in front of us and take us away. I can tell you I'm 100% sure it was not a plane, a helicopter, or a blimp. The only thing it might have been was some kind of military drone. All I know, my sister and I technically witnessed a UFO that night retracing the route of Betty and Barney. Thanks, Derek and Addie, for everything you do. Monsters Among Us rocks. Thank you, David. No, I simply can't ignore the coincidence here. The dynamics are similar. A man and a woman traveling in a car. Same location. And a very similar description of the craft itself. But those similarities seem to stop there. Because what the Hills describe happening next would become one of the first alien abduction cases. Here's a portion of that experience straight from Betty's mouth. This clip comes to us from AlienUFOResearch.com. There was one person there who spoke English in a very limited way, who kept trying to reassure us that no harm was going to come to us. They just wanted to do some simple tests. Both of our exams were very similar in most parts, and that they were very interested in our eyes, ears, nose, throat. They took scrapings of our skin, sample of our hair, and are interested in our feet. Then with me, they did what they called testing my nervous system. And he tried to insert a needle-like instrument into my navel, which he called a pregnancy test. And it caused pain, so they stopped doing it. They did not all look alike. They ranged in height, probably four to four, four to five feet. Um, as far as appearance, they had no hair and no protruding part of the ear. They had large eyes, small nose, thin slit for a mouth. Uh, they were all ba basically dressed alike in a one-piece dark outfit, but some were wearing jackets, but not all of them. Some were wearing caps, but not all of them. If you've been abducted, you know something unusual has happened, you go to the police. Every real abduction I've worked with has gone directly to the police within five hours. And not only that, these people who think they've been abducted and haven't, on real abductions, they always take some possession belonging to the person. About six weeks after our abduction, Bonnie and I came home one night, and on the kitchen table was a pile of dry leaves and my blue earrings I was wearing that night. So we knew 
They knew where we lived. So, David, I think you and your sisters should feel pretty thankful that your experience ended when it did. Otherwise, things could have certainly taken a turn for the worse. Thank you again for sharing that amazing story. Our next entry of the evening takes us down to the state of Virginia. The following was sent in by Katie. Hi, Derek. This is Katie. I'm originally from Maryland. Now I live in Southern Virginia. My story basically started off with a guy that I was dating. We went to this place called Witch's Pond near Stafford, Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. Happened almost close to two and a half years ago. My ex told me a lot about allowed stories about this and like I'm just getting <laughs> goosebumps and everything about telling you about this because I was just talking to my boyfriend about it and I showed him the video. I actually do have some video evidence on my Facebook and Witch's Pond actually is on a road that has a crucifix in front of the road. Me and my ex parked a little bit down the road from where the crucifix was. We had to park at a nearby soccer field park place, and we had to walk about maybe, I would say, about a quarter of a mile till we got to this dirt road that literally had a gate in front of it. I mean, if you were, like, working for the forest or, you know, it was, like, a private driver or whatever, they put no trespassing. So we went over the gate, and we started heading down, and maybe you can... I can send you the video through an email or some sort, but we were walking down and I kept hearing this creak in the trees and it was like a crisp, like summer night. And it was just really weird to hear that noise in the trees. Just really awkward, just really strange. And I just really was uncomfortable. I felt like somebody was watching me. Well, stories do tell that the pond is haunted by a witch. Supposedly, she got drowned in the pond or hung near the pond, supposedly. But if you go about a mile and a half down the trail, you'll reach a graveyard that is relatively near a church. There is a cement platform that my ex told me about that you can see the fog rising from the graves. You can see the fog rising from the platform near this, this cement wall. Well, supposedly you can also see body, full body apparitions, orbs, and everything. Me and my ex saw something totally different that night. When I told you about the breeze in the trees, there was no wind whatsoever that night. My camera got disoriented a couple times, and I had full service. And my camera on my phone was fairly new because I had a new iPhone. So I didn't think it was any glitching in my part, in my iPhone. But I definitely know that something was following us. The noise that I heard in the trees sounded like somebody hanging from a rope. And it still creeps me out to this day because I've had so many paranormal experiences in my life. And I'm a sensitive. So it just gives me that utter feeling of just chills. And if this is true, how that woman felt when she was hanging. When we were walking down a little bit further and I told my ex I wanted to leave, he persisted in us going and he had like a mini flashlight. So while he was holding the mini flashlight and we were continuing down this trail, he saw something. 
out of the corner of his eye in the woods. And he pointed his flashlight towards us. Not even a second later, we both saw a figure running across the path. I don't know if I caught it on my video, on my Facebook video, but I also wanted to tell you that it was on live. And there's people commenting and people that can hear growling and stuff, but I know it's probably airplane turbulence and everything. I just thought you would want to hear this story because it's kind of different. I'm a first-time listener and a first-time caller. I really appreciate your podcast because it gets me through my day at work. But I will continue leaving these messages for you so you can play it for other people and telling you these stories because I have so much more to tell you. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Having grown up in the woods of Ohio, I'm pretty familiar with the sounds of nature in that general region. And, believe it or not, I might have a logical explanation for those rope-rubbing sounds. You see, sometimes when trees grow close to one another, their branches eventually touch. And with a gentle breeze, the trees can really create some friction, which in turn produces a loud sound, not all that different from the sound of a rubbing rope. And you might not think it, but this is a fairly common phenomenon. So perhaps this is the sound that Katie picked up, and given the history of the location, her imagination simply got the better of her. But I'll tell you what, Katie. Send me that video and I'll reevaluate my assessment. Having not heard it myself, I might be way off. Either way, thank you again for sharing your experience with us. And speaking of sharing experiences, if you have a story you would like to share, simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-NIGHT. 6444. Now I guarantee you this next story is going to creep a lot of you out, and it'll likely bug the rest of you. The following was submitted anonymously, also from the state of New Hampshire. Hi Derek, I'm calling from New Hampshire. My story takes place in a small town called Whitefield, New Hampshire, probably about an hour or so from the Canadian border in northern New Hampshire in the White Mountains. Back in the mid-70s, I was living in a house in that town with my brother and my mother. My mother had divorced her second husband, and we were living in this house, uh, just three of us. It was the middle of the winter, a particularly brutal winter. I remember it was very, very cold, below zero temperatures. And the house had a barn next to it. And my mother had asked me to go out and get something out of the barn for her. I did so. And the barn was very old. And while I was in the barn, I felt something hit me in the back. Not very hard, just something hit me. I looked around and I thought I was probably just, you know, whatever. I uh, turned around and started to grab what uh, I was supposed to get. I don't really remember what it was at this point. It's been so long ago, but I felt something hit me again, and I looked down, and there was a bottle cap laying on the wooden floor underneath me. And I thought, hmm, that's weird. So I thought, well, maybe a mouse knocked it off or something. So anyway, 
it happened again, and then all of a sudden I noticed a row of bottle caps lined up on a like a wall brace, like a two-by-four where the siding or the walls were nailed to. And these bottle caps started flying off the board and coming towards me, hitting me in the leg and the chest. I mean, it probably happened about five or six times. And it just completely freaked me out. I ran out of the barn without getting my assigned item and went in the house and told my mother what had happened. And she just told me it was my imagination. And it was a logical explanation for it. Anyway, I told her I wasn't going back in the barn and I, and I didn't. A little bit later on that same day, my brother and I lived in the upstairs of the house. It was kind of like an attic that had been partially finished. And he was on one side of the attic and I was on the other side. So I was up there listening to music and all of a sudden I noticed this beetle, dark black beetle crawling on the floor. And the floor was kind of rough and you could see through, there were cracks in the floor where you could, you know, you really couldn't see anything, but it was, you could see down through there if you had a flashlight probably or something. So all of a sudden, all these beetles start coming up out of the cracks of the floor and crawling across the floor. And they all gathered on one side of the ceiling. Like there was insulation, but it was, you could see them all on the ceiling. And they were like in this perfect circle. And And my brother started going, do you see these things? Do you see these things? And I went over to his side and there was the same circle on his side of the ceiling in that attic and as soon as i went over to his side the beetles on the ceiling started crawling down the uh, wall again so i ran over to my side and they were crawling down my wall again and i don't know there was probably several hundred of them and they crawled over to the other side of the of the attic and got up on the other side of the wall and just kind of started going in a circle They weren't like in a mass, but they were just like following each other in a circle. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Uh, They stayed that way for a couple of minutes and and I yelled over to my brother and I said, are they on the other side? My brother said, oh, they're over here too. And they're they're going down the wall again. And anyway, on both sides of the attic, they went back down into the floor and then they were gone. And we were like, where did they come from? It's the middle of the winter and it's you know, below zero outside, how could there be beetles in the wintertime? And it wasn't very warm in the attic. I mean, we had little space heaters, but it wasn't, you know, warm at all. So anyway, that was uh, what happened. And that house was just a really creepy house. We actually moved out of it not long after that. But two things in the same day, the, the bottle caps and the beetles. I love your podcast and thanks for uh, listening. Have a good day. Thanks, Scholar. Now, wouldn't you know, I have my own beetle issue here in the studio. Albeit, mine is much less terrifying. I keep finding a dead wood beetle in the same spot on the floor. It's probably happened half a dozen times or so in the past six months. And it's always the exact same spot. And I don't find them anywhere else. And I actually throw them away or throw them outside so it's not the same beetle I'm seeing over and over. 
But as odd as my mystery is, it pales in comparison to our caller's nightmarish experience. Now, I've certainly heard of insects hibernating in attics. In fact, my dad has a nearly annual ladybug infestation in his attic. I imagine there's enough of them to fill a milk jug at least, if not a five-gallon bucket. But I can't speak to our caller's experience. Each experience is strange enough on its own without the fact that both of these odd occurrences took place on the same day. Maybe we have an entomologist listening that can at least fill us in on the insects. The bottle caps, well, that's a whole other deal altogether. Thank you again, caller, for sharing that weird experience. Well, I happen to know that a lot of you are at home bored with little to do. Well, why not extend your Monsters Among Us listening pleasure by joining one of our many social media accounts? You can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and now Reddit as well. So let Eddie, Warren, Tony, John, Sarah, and Josh entertain you when I can't. And a humongous thank you to those volunteers that help keep up the Monsters Among Us social media pages. Without them, this wouldn't be the best paranormal call-in show on the planet. Now, of course, the other thing that makes Monsters Among Us so incredible is the experiencers. Those that share their nightmarish stories. Callers like Alex in the state of North Carolina. This is Alex from North Carolina. I really, really like your podcast. Helps keep me entertained on the road. But this is a story uh, from the counter I had last year. About, I'm sorry, I don't like saying the story. People don't like to uh, think I'm like people think I'm crazy when I say the story. But in all reality, this did happen. It happened in the summer of 2018 out by Nightdale, North Carolina, which is, you know, right outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. So where this took place is at an RC field called RCHO. I fly RC helicopters with another buddy of mine, and we were sitting there. He just took me out to the field. First time I've ever been there, middle of the day. And to get in there, you got to go through this truck lot. So you pull in, it's this old truck lot, and you pull through there. And as you pull in, you pass through these bushes on each side of uh, the entrance. And so let me tell you about the bushes. There's about a five-foot drop-off, and then the bushes from what I've seen. And I'm sitting there talking to my buddy, and he's, his back is facing towards the bushes, so he doesn't see what I see. But what, but what I see is this thing. It, the best way I can describe it is it looks like that big comical lollipop that you give kids, you know, the big rainbow thing with the really tiny stick, but it was all white. And had these two just large black eyes just sitting there, you know, in the center of the head. No mouth, no nose, nothing else from what I can see. And it's just standing there, just staring there watching me for about five, ten seconds. And all of a sudden, it just starts down, and I hear a quick rustle of a bush, and I'm just sitting there, just freaked out, and my buddy's just sitting there like, Alex, what's going on? And I, and I told him, and uh, he admitted that he heard uh, the bush rustle, but nothing happened. Like, he didn't see his thing. We didn't see it run off or anything like that. I don't know what I could have seen. I, You know, I've done some research. Best thing I can describe it as is just something like 
you know, a humanoid or an alien or something like that. You know, more or less a gray alien. I have no clue what it is. This is the first time I'm publicly admitting this story. So, make of it what you want. I just want some answers of what the heck it could have been. Thank you, Alex. The description Alex gave weirdly rings a bell for me, aside from the obvious gray alien suggestion. Something else that was reported to be lacking a mouth and a nose. The infamous Dover Demon. April 21st, 1977. An ordinary Thursday night. It was about 10.30 at night, and 17-year-old Bill Bartlett was with friends coming back from a party that they'd been to. They were driving down Farm Street when Bill Bartlett saw something on the side of the road. What he saw was something that doesn't resemble any animal that anybody has ever seen before. It was climbing along a broken-down stretch of stone wall, And as he looked at it, it turned to look at him. He was absolutely terrified. Its head was about the same size as its body. It was was really huge. It had no visible mouth, no nose, no ears, but it had two huge eyes, glowing orange. They were round, and Bill said they looked just like glass marbles. His friends were engaged in conversation. They didn't see it. He traveled down the road and stopped the car told his friends what he had seen. Did you guys just see that? Dude, there was just something right there. His head was huge. Let's go check it out. Let's go back over there. They all wanted to go back and see if they could see it for themselves, so they turned around and they drove back to the place where he'd seen the thing. And they were too afraid to get out of the car. They didn't see it again. Dude, I'm getting out of here. That clip comes courtesy of Monsters and Mysteries in America. Now, although Bartlett and his gang didn't see the creature when they returned, they found out the next day that two other groups of teens had seen the exact same creature, less than a mile from the location of Bartlett's sighting. Am I suggesting that Alex saw a migrating Dover demon? Certainly not. But I couldn't help but notice the similarities between the two creatures. And I have to admit, I have a soft spot for the Dover demon. I like the cut of his jib. So thank you again, Alex for sharing your incredible experience. Now before we venture on, a quick reminder that I'd love to get paid for my work, so please consider signing up for Patreon or picking up a t-shirt, mug, or tote from the shop. Or if you're like the rest of us and not exactly raking in the dough, please consider a nice rate and review to help the show grow. A big thanks for considering any or all of those options. All right. I'm not going to lie, this next call is pretty wild. The following was submitted by Jeremy in Parts Unknown. Good morning, Eric. My name is Jeremy. This is not particularly my story. It was a grandfather's story that from when he was in his 20s as a logger, he worked in the Montana area. I guess I should preference this, that he's a burly man. He was, well, he was 6'4", obviously. Old age shrinks you, but... 6'4", about 250, so he's a larger man, and the loggers are generally bigger in general. So uh, he woke up just a typical night to go use the latrine. This was pre-Portageon days, I think they invented in the 60s. 
so he was over there using the latrine and he just was literally just sitting there obviously and uh was picked up the whole latrine was picked up and shaken just so you're talking about a wooden latrine probably 150 pounds and uh on top of him so 400 pounds just getting in there shaking and then he was tossed and when he hit the tree obviously the latrine kind of cracked but he still could see anything and I don't know if this is even usable because there was no evidence of what actually he would saw, but there was no man able to do that. I mean, he tried to pick up a 100-pound female and try to shake her, and it's hard enough, let alone a seated dead weight on top of solid oak wood or whatever type of wood they used out in Montana. But just thought that was cool. I thought I'd chalk it up to, you can always chalk it up to Bigfoot, I reckon. But love your show. Have a great one. Thank you, Jeremy. Now, I've worked construction sites, and I don't imagine a logging crew is much different. Those guys love to goof on one another, and picking up and shaking an outhouse while someone is inside is straight from the job site prank handbook. But Jeremy raised some very good questions. How could they have lifted him without noisy machinery? I also doubt they'd take it as far as to risk injury throwing the outhouse. So where does that leave us? Jeremy mentioned Bigfoot, and Montana has its fair share of eyewitness experiences. And probably more importantly, over the past 10 to 12 months, I've played at least three stories from folks experiencing an upright hairy hominid while visiting an outhouse. So is there some sort of attraction for this creature? A fascination? Or is it that Bigfoot really just has to go? Thank you again, Jeremy for sharing your grandfather's wild experience. And just like that, here we are. Our final call of the evening. And I saved something pretty special for you guys. Now before I play this, I need to offer up a caveat. Just like Max's call a few weeks ago, this one too is very poor quality. But despite texts sent, requests on the show itself, it seems our caller is not going to resubmit. So I made the executive decision to clean this file up as best I can and share it anyway. Hopefully, the quality is not too distracting. So without further delay, a call about my favorite cryptid from my home state. And get this, practically from my hometown. So please join me in welcoming Olivia from Ohio to the program. My name is Lydia. I'm actually calling from Alabama right now, but my home state is actually um, same as yours, Ohio. I'm from around the Saintsville area. I'm sure you're familiar with, and this is actually where this story occurred. I grew up on a farm between like off state routes and between Newark and Saintsville, and this happened when I was probably when I was about like probably been like 12 or 13, pretty young. They were like young enough to not understand what was happening or what was going on until later. My dad had to kind of reiterate this for me. But basically, what happened was I was in the kitchen of my farmhouse that I've grown up in since I was four, four years old. And my father, we had a field barn just up the hill from the house. My father was up there on the dock talking with one of our neighbors. He was Mennonite. And suddenly, my dad bursting through the back door, and I'm in the kitchen, bursting through the back door, and runs to the back of the house, and the gun cabinet is, pulls out one of the rifles, he 
yelled at me, runs back outside, and as he's running back outside, he yelled at me to stay in the house. And I have no idea what's going on. So I run over the window that's above our washer and dryer and look out the window, kind of where you can see the field that lays in front of the field barn and also the field barn. And he's running across the field, parallel to the front of the field barn, and the hill kind of like peaks a little bit and then goes down back over into these woods. And he's running with our German Shepherd, and I'm like, okay, well, that's weird. I don't, you know, probably call like a coyote or something that not uncommon at all. I've always heard coyotes, small coyotes, all sorts of things out there. I mean, it's things little Ohio men. So, come to later find out what my dad told me, what he has experienced, what he's seen, he was standing up on the dock of the field barn with our Mennonite friend, and had several times, had two German shepherds at the time, one male, one female, and they would have gone, we like to let them they would hardly ever tie them up unless they're like going out of town or something. And they would always wander off the field, into the woods. And Tara, our um, female German shepherd, had wandered off kind of up over the hill back to the woods. You know, nothing out of the usual. Um, a few minutes later, she comes sprinting back over the top of the hill towards the house. And about 30, 40 yards behind her, comes running a dog, and I can't remember exactly what my father has called it since he has a more kind of like cryptid name for it, since he's done more research. He called it at first a yogi dog, but he later recently told me when I asked him about the story again, he said that a yogi dog isn't quite accurate, I just remember what he called it, but it was running on two legs, chasing our German Shepherd. It had the face almost like a, a similar like a German Shepherd with like a longer snout, pointy, like triangular ear. Its color was like a Spanish gray in color and had like medium to like longer length hair and was literally chasing my German Shepherd across the field. And when it saw, when it got close to the house and saw my dad and his friends sitting up a stop, it stopped, it dropped down on all fours, it turned around and ran back to, like, for the woods, and that's when he ran down to the house and got the gun and took off with my male driven shepherd across the field to track this thing, and apparently he spent several hours out there in the woods trying to track it with my German shepherd and, no avail, didn't find anything, and there are stakeless things back there, I mean, like, it was probably long gone, like, but yeah, that is my paranormal story. Thank you, Olivia. I know exactly where you're talking about. In fact, my cousin doesn't live but five miles from you, and you're also very close to the site of the Zanesville Massacre that I spoke about on the very first episode of the show. Now, I have to say, Olivia, this story caught my attention for sure. So much so that I played the call despite the awful audio. Sometimes the connection just sucks. But for those that couldn't catch Olivia's story... I'll give you the short version. Olivia's father came running into their house, grabbed a gun, and ran back out. Apparently, a bipedal dog was chasing the family German Shepherd across a field adjacent to their home. When the animal saw the father, it dropped down to all fours and ran back into the woods. Well, my initial thought here was Dogman. Several states are hotspots for these creatures, supposedly. States like Michigan, Wisconsin... And of course, I have heard a few reports out of the state of Ohio. 
But then I remembered something about the Zanesville Massacre that might come into play here. But first, a refresher on that tragic event that took place a little less than nine years ago. This clip courtesy of ABC News. This sign perfectly captured the fear that gripped this small Ohio town today. Exotic animals, wild animals on the loose. What may be the biggest release of dangerous carnivores in U.S. history? The frantic 911 calls. 911. Yeah, there's a lion on Mount Perry Road in Grayshaw. I'm pretty sure, and I just saw a wolf. I think I just seen one. Looks like a jaguar or a wolf or something. Deputies with shoot-to-kill orders used their pistols to take down lions, tigers, bears, and wolves before the sun went down. And with daylight... It is still, still not a completely secured area. There were still wild animals on the loose. And even when they found one and tried to tranquilize it, it became aggressive and also had to be put down. We had animals outside that fenced area along the road that were trying to get loose. I had deputies that had to shoot animals with their sidearms at close range. Today, schools were ordered closed, children kept indoors. We are not talking about your normal, everyday house cat or dog. These are 300-pound Bengal tigers that we've had to put down. When it was over, 49 animals have been killed, including 18 Bengal tigers. The release of 56 wild animals was the last desperate act of their owner. Just out of prison, Terry Thompson deliberately cut cages open before committing suicide with a gun. Some of the animals attacked his body. There is only one animal that is unaccounted for tonight. It's a Macau monkey, which could be carrying a virus that is dangerous to humans. But officials say there's also a chance that that monkey was eaten by one of the big cats. Now it's the last part of that clip that I want to focus on. Is it possible that what Olivia's dad saw was this escaped monkey? Now the macaque monkey isn't very big, perhaps the size of a beagle dog or a dog that size. But among the animals that Terry Thompson had on the property was at least one baboon. I suppose it's possible that he had a second baboon that was somehow missed in the inventory. The escaped animal roamed the countryside, traveling the ten or so miles west to Olivia's farm. Now that might sound a bit unlikely, but I can tell you, crazier things have happened. But what about the supernatural element? What about the dog man? Well, in my research, I uncovered something about my home state that I didn't know. It has its very own werewolf legend. The Werewolf of Defiance. Werewolf of Defiance is a urban legend that led to a full-on police investigation. Defiance, Ohio is a small town. It's about 33 miles south of Toledo. And the year is 1972. Two railroad workers, Ted Davis and Tom Jones. Davis is doing his job and looks over and sees a huge, hairy pair of feet looks up further and sees what he describes as a huge hairy creature with fangs and clothing and holding a huge two by four, which he then uses to hit Davis over the head. The next night, his partner sees the same thing. He sees a huge hairy creature lurking in the bushes somewhere. So they both decide they're gonna tell their boss and he contacts the police. A week later, a grocer in town is driving home about four in the morning. He also sees a huge hairy creature crossing the road in front of him. He tells the police. Now the police have multiple sightings of this creature or person in a costume or whatever it is, and they open an investigation. 
A local newspaper gets a hold of the story, and suddenly, Defiance has werewolf fever. That clip comes to us from Clee Weekend. CLE, as in Cleveland. Now, I went to college probably 20 miles or so from Defiance, and I had no idea that this legend existed. Bummer. Well, it's near impossible to pin down exactly what this creature was. I think the baboon theory is unlikely, but so is our old friend the dogman. So I will leave you with this final thought. Several researchers, including small-town monster Seth Breedlove, have suggested that there may be some sort of connection between the dogman and Native American earthworks or burial mounds. Well, would it surprise you if I said that the next town over from Olivia's is very well known for its millennia-old earthen mounds. So thank you again, Olivia. My mom works in Zanesville, so if you see her, tell her I said hi. And that's going to do it for this episode. But before we go, I want to take a quick second to thank all the medical professionals out there, keeping us safe and healthy. And on top of that, all the essential workers out there, keeping this world running. Thank you so much. Now, I will be dark next week in preparation for the military episode, season 9, episode 10. But fear not, tomorrow evening, I have some entertainment to offer up. I'm going to drive out to the desert and live stream a UFO search. Now, I'm sure we won't find anything, but we'll definitely give it an old try. So check us out on Facebook and I think maybe Instagram about 8 p.m. Eastern uh, Friday night. Hope to see you guys there. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. That terrifying score that you hear. Well, that's code.ag. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it spooky. Have a great night. Then again, while I was conducting my quote-unquote research on Olivia's call, I found another likely culprit. Boy, is this ever strange today, Wilma. Halloween may still be at least three weeks away, but a ghoulish story is already evolving in Bainbridge Township. Police there say Saturday night a man claiming to be a werewolf terrorized a local family. As Liz Clayman tells us now, the werewolf story would be funny if it weren't so doggone scary.
It's not often that you see the word werewolf on the front page headlines, but this story was no joke. This quiet street with the handmade sign and the tree-lined road became a site of horror for some residents who called police to say a crazy man had crashed into their home. We found out that he had just entered the home, was running through the home, uh, terrorizing the residents. And when he was approached by the husband, he suddenly dived through a screen door. He was tackled and was yelling to our officers that he was a werewolf and to leave him alone. And here's the so-called werewolf, 18-year-old Ayaz Dean of Chagrin Falls. Now, here's the scary part. Police tell us that before the suspect charged into the resident's home, he was for some reason charging through this pond here, and therefore he had this green algae dripping all over his head. The pond is just a stone's throw from the home where the ordeal began and ended. A number of times he was he just um, was kind of ranting and raving at this point and saying that he was a werewolf to our officers. And what did these officers think? Well, obviously they knew they had a troubled young man and they just attempted to take him into custody at that point. Nearby residents Stormy and Janice could not believe the story. Yes, and it's not the 31st. My birthday is the 31st. I could take offense. Instead, from now on, they'll take precautions. I never locked the doors. Guess what? I will now. And me too. In the meantime, the alleged werewolf has been charged with breaking and entering. In Bainbridge Township, Liz Clayman, News Channel 5. We tried to reach the suspect today, but his family told us he had no comment. That clip was featured back in 1993 from ABC News 5 out of Cleveland, Ohio. And if you're wondering about the distance, the Zanesville area is a little over two hours from the area the supposed werewolf ran amok. Thanks for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a great night.